This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with rock star founding member of the band Train, Charlie Colleen. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear friend Charlie Colleen, Grammy Award-winning musician, songwriter, lyricist, and producer, and founding member bass player of the platinum-selling mega-rock band Train, shares his life as a graduate of Berklee College of Music and the co-writer of Drops of Jupiter, Meet Virginia, and one of my all-time favorites, Calling All Angels. You got to join me as Charlie gives us an intimate glimpse of the highs and lows of a rock star and how he emerged as an art collector, homeless artist advocate, philanthropist, and director of the Newport Beach, California Film Festival. My guest has such an amazing life story for being such a young man and such a super, superstar in the world of entertainment. He has a magnificent heart and his, his human spirit is what catapults him into the limelight now and forevermore. He will talk to us, I know, about his adventures, his new endeavors, his all-star band. I won't take any more of this precious time. It's an honor to invite my buddy, Charlie Colleen, to the show. Charlie, thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. I know you're probably in the recording studio making another hit. Uh, well, wow. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. And that's, um, wow, I'm humbled. That, that was a lot for a, even for a man of my caliber, Dan, I'm telling you, that was a lot to take. <laughs> that was a very nice introduction. <laughs> um, and I actually am going in the studio right after this. But um, thank well, you. I, I feel like, well, a, a couple of those things you said, um, I, it's not important uh, that everything's like exactly that, that bio. Uh, I mean, I actually technically left train in 2005 and then um, not three. And, and then the, the thing about that is, how do I say, um, Rob had already left the band at that time. But as far as my tenure in train, I'm, I am really proud of taking that, being an original member. Um, but the, there's a story behind that, but it, were you going to say something else though? Were you going to ask me another question? Oh, no, I, I just that? want you to go. Yeah. Please talk to us uh, about, you know, where you found your passion for music and talk to us about train. This is perfect, brother. Thanks. Okay. Well, this, it's kind of, it's, I'm really glad that you called me because right now is a good time. I've been really reflective too, because I haven't been able to do, um, I haven't been able to travel and do shows or, or meet friends and record for the last couple of months. So I've been really looking at my catalog and thinking about what I want to do more of and less of. But um, so the thing about train that was kind of interesting is that in, and it, it certainly plays a, a huge role in my story um, as far as successes and mistakes I made, because when I met Rob Hotchkiss, I was in the seventh grade and he was an army brat. His, his father was a pilot and he grew up in Berlin and he came to my hometown in Newport beach when, for his senior year of high school. He's about seven years older than I was. So I I heard this German kid was going to play in the quad of high school. And so I, I just was out of sixth grade. And that was an important summer because I went to Europe that summer for the first time and culture shock and all that stuff. So I came back and, and I was determined to um, 
take my music more seriously. And so I skateboarded up to the quad of high school and I saw this guy sitting on a stool in front of about a thousand kids. Um, and, and this is Southern California, very judgmental place. You know, it's a tough place to be a kid. Everybody's like super cool. Like it's funny. Um, it, it's, I just had lived in Virginia the year before. So that's another story. But I, so I came back here and, and I was this kid from, you know, like, uh, um, I came back there and everybody's, you know, skateboarding and surfing and, and suntan and, you know, wearing hip clothes. And I was just kind of wearing tough skins with his rhinestone shirt. It was ridiculous. But anyways, um, so, but I ride, I, I, I skateboard up to see this guy that I heard about and, and he was sat on the stool. And the thing that struck me was that he was playing songs with a guitar in his hand by himself. Um, and I just thought that took so much courage. I could never imagine doing that. I mean, if you could hear the sociological kind of dynamic of that and all these kids, I realized, I was like, wow, they're all holding food and nobody's throwing anything. I thought that was you know, very impressive. <laughs> thousand, you know, you know, high school kids. And so anyways, Rob and I remain friends and, and, uh, but what I'm getting at is, so I always like to play, I will, my goal from that point on was to get in the band with a guy like that who was older than I was more experienced and probably better as a musician. And I, I thought, okay, I'll always try and be the worst guy in the band. And that way I'll, I'll improve more rapidly. So that was a really, lucky notion that I had because I, I did that and I, and so anyways by the time I was like oh gosh I was turning like 19 and Rob had uh and I reconnected I went to I left high school and I went to Santa Barbara but the point is about that that's uh is that I got there and I was playing water polo and surfing and all that stuff and and I was in a band and had a girlfriend and I realized that would just be four more years of what I already had you know, in high school in Newport Beach. So I really, I left and I went to Berkeley School of Music, which Rob had also done. And when I realized that Rob had also been to Berkeley and and my teachers and some of my, the people there knew him and we reconnected. So Rob had been in LA and he started a band. He got it, he got it kind of going. And he called me up and said, we have this record deal with Polygram. It's small, but you got to come play bass. And I was a jazz composition guitar major. So I was like, bass, huh? Um, okay, you know, I'll do it because I could be in classroom there or I could be traveling signed to a major label um, with these great people. So I just, I just said yes. And, um, and so we had to find another guy too. Uh, that's a different story. But so we listened to, literally we looked in the penny saver and we found this guy that seemed to be about right. And we met with him and, and got him in the band and his name was Jimmy. And the point is, is Rob and Jimmy and I were in that band and that band was called Apostles. Now, we were a pretty good live band, but we didn't know how to make a record. And so this is really pertinent because I'll tell you the ending of the story and then fill it in. But Rob, Jimmy, and I were in that band for years. And then we we broke up. The label dropped us and we kind of we kind of failed in a way. Like, And the, the thing about that deal was that the other band that they were trying to break was band called Tin Machine, which was David Bowie's side project. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Wow. Uh, it was David Bowie and the, you remember Soupy Sales? Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, his two sons, Tony and Hunt Sales, were the best session players in L.A. And so David got those guys. And, and we're on the same label. So the, the deal was, even though it was a small a small deal and a small label, we got to go open up for that band all over the place, and all over the world, actually. So even though we didn't sell a ton of records and it wasn't a success, I I got to go to Asia and, you know, uh, Australia, all over the world 
you know, opening up for this great band uh, with David Bowie in it. So I couldn't have been happier. I was a professional guy and I wasn't even 21 yet. So, so that was great. But since when it fell apart, uh, I thought that I was washed up. I got a good opportunity. I, I got every break you can get. Um, I worked really hard and it didn't pan out and our label didn't want to keep a sign. So I thought, I think I was 22 and I thought, wow, I was, I'm done. I'm cooked. You know, <laughs> it's kind of funny looking back thinking that I was washed up at 22. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that those, the three of us that were in that group a few years later, um, I actually stayed um, in that other part of the world. I, I lived in Singapore for two years and did jingles and stuff like that. And it was good because um, around that time in Hong Kong, they were losing their kind of like lease, if you remember. It was, it was 1993, oh. I think. And so all the expatriates were going to other places. So I kind of ended up being the only good or well-known Western guitarist in the whole country of you know, Singapore. So I got every job. <laughs> it was great oh, for a while. Wow. But I came back and Jimmy and Rob and I, we basically, there was a new drummer and a new singer. And that was trained. So why I'm telling you that whole story is because like in essence I was kind of entrained since I was like a child. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that that and so we rebanded and then, you know, in nineteen ninety six we kinda of got things really going well and then by the end of that decade we had hits and then the Grammys and, and then stadiums and all that stuff. So it was so on the good note I was this very worldly guy. I, I ended up being kind of accomplished and pretty successful. At the same time because I was always in a band with an, a schedule and somewhere to be, and most of the people around me were either buying a ticket to see us or, or working for that organization or something. So I didn't get a lot of people telling me the truth about myself. <laughs> yeah. so, so I, I kind of didn't really grow up in a lot of ways. I, I, yeah, I could, on the one hand, I was more experienced and worldly than a lot of my friends. But on the other hand, I never really had to go out there and figure it out um, the hard way because I always had something that I was good enough at that that led the way. Um, so I didn't really. So, when, you know, by the time I, I was like, all of a sudden I was 40 and I, all this time had gone by. And I was like, I literally looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, gosh, I'm like a like a 40 year old child. I don't know what it really means to kind of be a, a man that just has to deal with life. I had a lot of people helping me because I was always the, the group I was in was important enough and making enough money for everybody that I kind of didn't have to. So that's kind of the, this, this chapter of my life has been really interesting lately. Yeah. So, I want, I want to, um, we'll come back to that for a second, but you said something was so intriguing. You know, I've, I've heard this statement. We all have that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And if you're, if everybody yeah. in the group is thinking the same, then nobody's thinking at all. And you said, you always wanted to be the worst player in the band so you could always <laughs> learn. Yeah. That is so yeah. intriguing to me that subconsciously you said you wanted to position yourself so that you were a constant, continuous learner, a seeker of, 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 of truth or a seeker of success principles, governing principles. Talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you learned or let's just focus in on one thing you learned from the band and then let's transition back into a 40 year old okay. man looking back on which you, on what you wish you had have learned and now what you know because of that experience. That's really fascinating question. Thanks a lot. This is, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I, I talk to with my peers. This is like what I'm trying to, 
trying to assess. I don't want to. I don't want to live in the past, but I, I like to draw on it, you know. And so this is healthy for me. But uh, well, the thing that you that that concept of being the worst guy in the band, like that was when I was yeah, when I was in my you know 13, 14, 15, and I thought I this guy. And so I ended up. I had a band called Side Effects, and the youngest guy next to me was twenty two, and so I was I was definitely trying to keep up and keep up. And then before he knew it, I feel like maybe I kind of even got to the point where they're trying to keep up with me because it was, I was just sprinting and taking so much in. But so that, that attitude never left me. And I'll give you an example about the band. I think, you know, like you said, and it can be a metaphor for life too. All this stuff can, but so it's not just like about the career, but <clears throat> I mean, here's an example. Um, we had a hit on the radio. So here I am um, kind of now it's like around the millennium where you had a couple songs on the radio that were really uh, successful and we're playing arenas, you know, a couple years in a row now. And, and sometimes bigger shows than that, and, and everything was selling out all the time. And and the the big challenge was on the sophomore album. I was really proud that we found a way to um, because I I'd, I'd done what I said. I I played. I learned to play kind of everything. And I think if you're, <clears throat> it's like a language. If you learn one language, you can learn a lot. But I I just made sure that I could play the drums pretty well. I could get by on a piano. I I think I specialized with my pitch and my high voice being um, a real asset because I could sing like in a female register practically with full voice and not falsetto and that's that's a great thing to have going for you because um the, uh, then you can recreate your album live anyways but um so you know there's very just, few so, people who can do that you know you hit a Labrador on the highway, there's a good chance he can hit that high range. But other than that, I don't know a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot of air. I felt like, you know, you as an athlete, I, I literally, I, you know, I got a treadmill behind the bus that was put in the backstage room and everything. I had to, I had to stay in shape because everybody else, I had to breathe about 50% more than the rest of the band. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. was, that's kind of funny. I, I really, it was uh, notable. And uh, well, Thanks for that, because I, that takes a lot of work. And so I'd always trying to get do these things that were out of reach. Also kept it interesting for me, because when you're playing, because we, we were a radio band, we're kind of the last of that era. And when you have a, a record that has a song, um, you know, let's, okay, like, Drops of Jupiter just wouldn't go away. So our record company, they were great, you know, but they really, they wanted us to keep touring that record until it started to fall off the charts and that that makes sense that's a normal formula but it was like going on year three and i have to tell you um not making a new record in three years was not my idea of being an artist you know that's where i appreciate that my job is to write songs and to perform them and a record company's job is to sell them so i'm not i was never against i never understood that like us against the suits thing i always thought that it was a very clear thing. They're like, we, we will pay you in advance to make your records and go have this career in exchange for you giving us lots of material that we can sell. So like I never, the whole artist against the the man thing, I, I just thought, I was like, who who is confused about this deal? <laughs> it's it's a good deal, you know? And but so I understood that Columbia, my job was to, to do the work part. But man, after like year two, when you have only have two records out so far and and you're playing um, 200 shows a year, it's just, it can get really boring and you can start to get complacent. And, and so that's why I, I would try and find ways to kind of keep it interesting. And, and that's part of being a pro. It's, you know, it's not always fun. And um, so I was proud of that. And that was kind of my identity. And I thought, so I would always try and figure, I start playing bass with my feet with bass pedals. And then I play guitar on the top and I had a little 
move on my mic stand so I could play keyboard lines in between and then I'd switch it up and and that's the cool thing about being in a band for so long is that Rob and I and Jimmy all would switch off all the time, even to the point where we would switch off uh, different nights of the week, playing different instruments on different songs. And we really, really worked to keep it interesting. But anyways. Uh, so, let, so let me ask you about uh, this, 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 this second P that I love to talk about preparation, you know, coming out of the COVID-19, coming out of this situation where. I love to ask people if your resume is the same this year as it was last year, you're the most boring, pathetic person on the planet. We need to seek new training, seek new goals, seek new stretches. And you're basically a walking, you know, epiphany of, of what can happen when you prepare yourself so that you can create your own change. Do you have any advice for people who feel stuck, who feel like it's them against the world, them against the suits, as you say, because yeah. you were able to trigger your passion, creativity, and imagination, regardless if the, if, if the record label wanted you to, to continually tour that same group of songs. Well, see, but that's okay. Well, I, okay. If I, I was, I took too long to get to that point and I'm sorry, Dan, but I, no. if, oh, oh, the, the thing I was going to ask you, I mean, I was going to, tell you really quickly that it will lead into that question is that so I when I was out there doing that touring the same record for a long time and stuff like that I would look at the bands that we're opening for that were somehow we had hits on the radio but I didn't feel like we were really part of culture I didn't feel like we were really had our finger on the pulse of of the people we were playing for I knew that we they liked our songs on the radio but I could see that they wanted to get to that hit and they weren't really with the band and then we opened up for bands like U2 and stuff and I noticed every every person pretty much they pretty much loved every song and they would get, you know, they would, they would want to hear the new stuff. They would want, they want to see the dynamic of the whole group evolve. And, and so I was thinking, I was always so envious of those groups. And then it dawned on me, like, like this giant door opened. I thought, Oh, I'm in a cool position to ask those people. Why don't I just ask them? So I was like, literally like, Hey Bono, how do you become more integrated into connectivity with the people that you're trying to connect with? what do you do? You know? And so when I asked him that question, his response changed my life forever. And I think it's safe to say, um, it had something to do with some of, well, let me put it this way. So he said, you know, this, the show that you're playing tonight really isn't probably the most important show of the next 24 hours. It's what you're going to do is know whether you're playing for a uh, thousand people or 20,000 people. That's great. But he goes, well, what I suggest you guys do is whatever time you go to bed, fine. But get up at 4.35 in the morning, even if you only slept for two hours, and uh, have a runner take you to the, you know, call ahead and get go to the nearest radio station. He goes, we had hits. It wasn't like we're trying to get in the door. We we're in the door. But I wasn't feeling like we were connecting. We weren't being part of it. And I thought, well, we have this great platform. How do I, how do I make it more meaningful for all of us, you know, uh, audience and, and us alike, you know, the band? And so... He goes, go to go do morning drive time every day because here's what's gonna happen. Like the the DJs love music, um, the people who work at a, at a radio station love music, and and so if you go in there, they know you're tired, and and they know you're touring and playing every night. And if you if you go in there and bring in a coffee and bagels, tell a couple of jokes, maybe even sing a song during drive time. First of all, who do you think they're gonna wanna? You're gonna get an army of people that re appreciate that, you know. And if you do that every day of your whole tour and you did 150 shows in the last nine months, you know, then you have, 
you know, 100 people that know that you're, you're doing, you're willing to work that hard. And it, it makes an impression because they get up and that early and they go to the shows too. And so you're going to then, then take a picture with them. And the DJ will put it on his fridge and, you know, and his wife and he might love your band. And then, then they're going to be trying to break the band. You're going to have these soldiers out there. And also you're going to hear what they're listening to and you're going to meet your people. And then you're going to want to write to them instead of, you know, kind of a, this removed thing. And I was like, wow. Plus not to mention that when you play drive time radio, if, if you're in a, I don't know, in a, one of the A markets, you know, like, I don't know if you're in Dallas or New York or something, you're playing for a million people instead of 20,000 in the morning going to work, <laughs> you know, next thing I knew it, we're, we were doing that every day. We, we made friends with people. So then every time we went to a city, I felt like I knew, and we go do in stores at record stores when they had them, you know, so I knew the record donors and I knew the DJs and I knew the radio programmers and the promoters and we were all like a big family. And then it was like, when I was writing, I was thinking about all these people that I respect and they're going to hear it. So I better keep, I got to keep the bar pretty high, you know? I love it. So what's, uh, what's one thing you learned through all this looking back, what did you learn through your whole experience uh, that brings you up to a 40 year old Oracle? Oh, I have I'm, so much wisdom now looking back. What's one thing that you learned that you think all of us need to know? Well, I'm a little older than 40 now. I just want to say that's when I had the, that's when I had the epiphany. So I've been working on it the last few years for sure. But anyways, um, well, I think now, um, I think I used to think about things too much. I would think about, um, I, try, I would try, I tried too hard. I, I thought about the result of my efforts and I thought about how things would appear and, you know, what that would mean. And, you know, I guess, I guess I, I, I wish I would have just stayed focused on the work because what I'm thinking now is like, I, w I would rather have had, um, I, I've worked with a lot of musicians and I thought, well, they're not, let's say, I mean, if, okay, let me, let me rephrase this. I, sometimes I would, I would try and position myself in order to be successful and, and try and, and see what that would look like and make decisions based on that. I wish I would have just thought about what I think is good and what I think is beautiful and where I could be the most effective. And even helpful, instead of thinking about what's good for my career, I wish I would have been more, well, actually, I, I am now. Like, for example, the, the, today after this uh, interview, I'm going to produce a band, uh, and the lead singer was 15, and I relate to him. He, he was bullied, and he went inward, started writing lyrics. They're good. Um, a friend of mine told me about them, and I went and saw them. And a mutual friend of mine is a guy named Ryan Shook. He was in a, a very... You know, successful band in the 90s and he went in there with them and and produced a song and now it's like the number one most requested song on KLOS and and their their kind of ballad is I'm going to do that one because I love big beautiful songs I'm shamelessly not hip I don't need to be like you know overly avant-garde I just if, if it gets to your soul and your heart I love it so anyways I'm working with them and this is how I did it I offered um to work with them on this, you know, and uh, and they said they would love that. And I said, okay, let's go let's start working and we'll work out the details later. And so what I'm getting at is I would rather have a bigger body of work and leave behind a true body of work, you know, um, bigger discography and, and things like that. And been a part of more meaningful projects than trying to engineer um, what would look like a great career. And I did that way too much. 
And, um, and that's just kind of wasted time to me looking back, yeah. you know, well, maybe <clears throat> jazz comp- composition on a guitar for those of our <laughs> listeners who understand jazz, you know, everybody in the band gets an opportunity to kind of go on their own while everybody's kind of keeping the beat and keeping that, keeping that, that, right. that melody. So maybe that's, uh, that's how you continually live, live your life, grab the guitar and let's just feel your way through the, through the chords, through the, through the, the riffs, through the licks, you know? Yeah. The, the thing about the jazz thing, it's, it's true because it's like playing a cover. Like so many great bands started off playing covers. Trencher did. Um, Stones and, you know, Zeppelin, all those guys. But, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quote a different friend of mine that I'm really, I don't know, proud of. I think he's just, uh, well, I was, okay, Joe Walsh said he was talking about n- new music and he wasn't saying that, yeah, music today is not as effective or not as <clears throat> sincere as, as it used to be. He wasn't making that point, but he was making, he just made a distinction and he said, well, because if you're doing music on a computer and you're not doing it with other people, you're less compelled to bring, bring more of yourself. And he goes, you know what I, he, I don't know if I can make the point as well as he did. He said, you know, nowadays I don't hear people testifying as much. I was like, what do you mean testifying exactly? He said, well, you know, like when you think of testifying, usually you think of being in court or on the stand and let's say you're, you're, you're trying to tell the truth. So it saves your life. And if they don't, if you don't convince them, they're going to hang you. So if that, that's what's on the line. You can be very compelling telling your story. It's like, like, that's what Aretha does. You know, that's what certain soulful players do. And even if you didn't write the song, let's say, if you're playing a jazz song that's already been around, if you take that within yourself and find that, that expression, like your life depends on it, that's what I meant by testifying. And that's hard to do unless you're actually playing with uh, human beings breathing oxygen at the time. It's hard to do it to a screen on a computer. Um, what, a, so, what a message for the for the for the generation who wants to sit in the same room and text each other instead of putting their handheld devices yeah. down and interacting belly to belly, heart to heart. This is good stuff, brother. Okay, so of all the yeah. songs you've written, what's your favorite? And I'm hoping that it's my favorite too, so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, um, I will tell you that there's I, I'm older now, so like I. If I was, I don't know, 50 years ago, it would have been easy. But now it's like I did play uh, with a lot of different groups. And, I mean, when I left Train, I went out because I wanted to prove I was very, I, my ego and my identity was all on stake. And I was thinking about that too much. And <clears throat> But I went out and played with all these hard rock bands. Like, I went out on a tour with Slipknot. You can imagine the guys with them wearing masks and stuff. And um, <laughs> like they're the hardest rock band in the world. Their, their guitarist, Jim Root, broke his wrist um, skateboarding in Iowa. And they had to get, they just did a record and they were going to go make a double live album. And so I got to replace them because I was friends with those guys. And, um, and that's more like a, uh, a multimedia, you know, kind of art installation or kind of, you know, concept art show because there's nine guys in the band, there's all this stuff going on, but and I found a way to appreciate that. And then I, I, anyways, I, I played with all these different groups and I found a way to do, if I, if I take that advice, I mean, I hadn't heard it at that point from, from Joe Walsh, if I put myself into it and find something within me to connect with the people I'm playing with and, and be of use, you know, like add value to it in any way I could. Um, I don't care what I'm playing. I swear. I don't, I don't mind if I'm singing, you know, playing guitar, piano, bass, whatever. Um, but um, my favorite song after all that time playing with all these different groups kind of comes back to, I, I think I'll have to go with 
Uh, can it be a tie? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. The the thing I the story I told you about trying to if you're going to be in a pop band in a popular culture music rock band and it's the point is to go out there and play with the popular majority of the people it was as many people as you can you know so that I felt like I was very proud and successful in conveying some really good stuff in Calling All Angels and I feel like I, I do feel very proud of that one because my, my role in train as far as a writer goes um Pat did most of the work lyrically but I I've usually pulled the music and the ideas and the the basic content of the song out of the ether and I had to work it up and I would give him like a lot to work with. And I usually give him a, a phrase or two of, of an idea I have and some, and then he would take it and work on it. And then sometimes, gosh, he would not for about, I'd say for about eight years, Pat and I were kind of, I would say about, we were on fire. We were fantastic um, writing partners, but um, anyway, so calling angels, I thought had a, a spectacular impact. And then there's songs I don't know. You'd have to be trained a trained fan. Um, and there was there's there's such a different to know these songs probably, but there was about to come alive. Like don't give up on me about I'm about to come alive. Is that's the song I wrote. <clears throat> the I kind of came to Pat with a pretty completed idea. Um, and uh, that one had. That's when I first started kind of having to face the fact that I was not okay exactly. I was looking at some addiction problems and. And so I was thinking kind of like that, that, uh, that Billy Joel song, second wind or whatever. It's just, I was like, wait a minute, I mean, there's more fight the dog here, but I don't know why this is confusing for me, but it's getting more so. And so that one was an important one because I wanted to kind of address that publicly and hopefully be helpful to some other people who might be going through the same thing. And then calling all angels was, uh, on a, on a grander level, like, Hey, come on like we were as after 9 11 we were traveling around and and i mean i saw the world was scared you know we'd be in sri lanka and it was not okay um so hmm, what well, do you think my song has calling all angels brother you hit the nail on the head ah, good so as we wow. wind down our time share 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 one meaningful moment singing calling all angels Maybe acapella in California. I remember when we were shooting the bull and you shared some magnificent story that brought tears to my eyes when you were performing Calling All Angels. Can you share that? Um, yeah, I think, okay, I think it's this story. I, I hope it is because, okay, it's more important than playing it live was I was telling you that, because uh, I mean, okay, I'm not saying that that didn't happen. I'm just saying how I, what I thought went down was that um, I was reminiscing about a story where I was coming home from a really long tour. Um, we used to, because Train was a very hard working band. So um, I was coming home from being gone for months and I was alone. We all were going to go to, at that point, we all went to different places and some of the guys had girlfriends in I don't know, different countries, the whole thing. So we, we did our last show in Australia and I used to take a long way to get back. Um, sometimes I go do something for myself and go surf some cool place or whatever. But this is where we just kind of ended up in England and we were, I was in a airport lounge waiting for my flight home. And I was really realizing like at this point, I don't really have anybody to go home to. I was, I was touring so long that I was just kind of just this guy. And it was like, I was, it, it was the, I achieved the goals I thought I was you know supposed to attain, but I really didn't have much of a life, you know, but anyways, 
uh, I was, we're coming, we're on the private nation tour. So that was the Calling All Angels thing. And that was an unlikely hit too. It's a six minute mid-tempo song that I didn't think necessarily would be like uh, good for the radio, but I was so happy that it was. But there I was in this lounge and there was TV screens. And on the screen was, I'll just, I'll cut right to the chase. Um, there was a, a, a kid being interviewed because what the, what the situation was is uh, a kid got abducted. Uh, you know, horribly, and it was, it was missing for a long time, and and then when they found that kid, he was found quickly, like I think a week or two later, but when they found him in the same house, there was another kid who had been held, you know, captive against his will, and all the horrible things that go with that seemed to be going on, Um, and this kid would have been there for months. Anyways, it was a follow-up story because they, so they rescued, they found a both, but the, the idea was that the kid who'd been there for a long time was probably going to be deeply disturbed because it was a horrible scenario. Anyways, it was a few months later, and he was test, he was telling the interviewer um, that you know he he was okay. Remarkably, he was kind of okay after being like basically I don't know locked in a dungeon or whatever it was. And um, and the the guy interviewing him said, "How did you get through it?" And he goes, "Well, my parents and I have this song we love, and um, and there's this part that goes, I won't give up if you don't give up.'" And um, and so we would always say that to each other. And so I knew that they would never, <laughs> it chokes me up to still this day, yeah. so, you know, because I knew they wouldn't give up and I knew they'd find me. So I hung in there and I thought, God, I, I had nothing to do with that. I can't take any credit whatsoever. And it's a total God thing. But I thought, wow, to be part of a song that has even one story like that, where it, it helps somebody get through something that difficult how scary to be a kid and just i mean i got locked in the bathroom once and i was i am you know traumatized um, <laughs> for yeah, 10 minutes but, um, I mean, yeah, that's, but I'm just saying, that's so. the story you shared yeah I, I mixed up another one okay. as well but that that's the one i wanted you to share our time's winding okay. down here charlie let's just get let's cut to the chase there's a guy his name <laughs> is uh is is pouch you know he's he was the professor pouch who coined that phrase last lecture Randy Pausch, and I've asked every single oh. one of my guests, my friend, if you had one one day to live, what would be your one consolidated message to the world? You know, when you when you come up with just one powerful lyric amongst all of the lyrics in that song, uh, what's what's your one message to the world right now? And with the commitment that I want to have you back to talk a lot about your your life and what you've learned since you. Yeah, we didn't really get past 2005, did we? <laughs> we haven't even talked oh, about God. your new all-star band and all the things that uh, that you're doing. But yeah, yeah let's just leave, let's leave like to talk about with one powerful message. What would you say to, what would you say to the world right now coming out of this, this, this Corona, whatever you call it, um, that has really reconstructed the the norm, the new normal. What what's your message, brother? Wow, well, I I as you were asking me to do that, I was going through you know so many quotes and so many messages that I read a lot, and I was thinking about this and that. The other thing was racing through my head, and then I thought about I don't know, I can't put it in an elegant way, but what. One thing that has happened is, is recently, and I'm not saying this as, as an artist, like everybody has to do something creative. I was just thinking, it sounds, and it might even sound righteous, and I don't want to sound that way, but I was thinking of 
what I've been trying to do is, okay, I, I haven't been able to, for about two and two and a half months, I couldn't even really get into a studio because you'd have to have people running that studio and engineers and, and then you'd have to have the musicians that want to come in and work with you. And we we're not supposed to be in the same room. So it really wasn't an option, no shows. And then, so I, I started, I'm, a, I'm an artist, a visual artist too. So I paint a lot. And I did feel that there was an epiphany I had where the, I was painting and I thought, I kept on looking forward to having an art show. And I was like, it's not about selling the work, but I was excited about it. And it wasn't having people say, wow, I love your art and you're doing great or something like that. I realized for me, it's about taking something that's personal and then sharing it. So I was thinking what that really boils down to is it's not about, we always think in singular terms a lot. Of, well, not always. I tend to think in singular terms. And so I'm not trying to come from a place of saying, let's be altruistic and, you know, and think about others all the time. But I was thinking that how could I today, that's what I've been doing. That's kind of my prayer in the morning today, since I can't go out and do what I'm good at, what I'm known for, what I, I'm just Charlie. And, and I'm going to bump into a few people, maybe with a mask on when I'm walking um, to exercise. But on that, I'm just kind of here. I thought, how can I add value to anybody else's life today um, in this sort of scenario? And I was wondering, why haven't I been asking myself that every day? And I, I try to be a good guy, but what I'm saying specifically, like, so I started looking for opportunities where there might be something, some, some deficit that I could like show up for in somebody's life in this situation where I couldn't really go out into the world and be what I think Charlie is. I hope that makes sense. So I was thinking, because you can't do it alone. Like if, if I don't do those things, if I don't affect someone else, then it's just, that's the one thing about this whole rock star thing that I'm sure that you went through with your sports. It's didn't you get tired of the Dan show? It was like the Charlie show for so long. I just, I couldn't think about me and my next move. I had to start looking at others in order to have any kind of uh, second wind that made me want to keep going. And this just kind of made it more, more obvious. Like when you separate from people, did he miss everybody? It's yeah. yeah. So I, I don't have a quote for you. <clears throat> Dan, I'm sorry. I didn't plan that out, but uh, you're a walking quote, man. Everything about you is, is so amazing. You know, ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been the famous Charlie Colleen. And because he and I both agree on one of his most prolific concoctions, one of my favorite songs he's written and recorded calling all angels. Oh, let, let, let is it just, more nice say Coco? Cause, yeah, cause, please. You know, I wrote that with that. No, I'm just saying, I, I, so I know this isn't, you know, a big deal, but I just want to always say co-wrote. I, I'm a collaborator, so I didn't, I, I greatly participated in that song, but I didn't write it by myself. So I just want to clear I, that up. I get it. <laughs> but I, okay, want to, cool. I want to sign off with Charlie Colleen just by refreshing everyone's memory and challenging everyone to definitely download and listen to Calling All Angels, especially as we've, had to come together and reinvent our normal. I need a sign to let me know you're here. All of these lines are being crossed over the atmosphere. I need to know that things are gonna look up because I feel us drowning in a sea spilled from a cup. When there is no place safe and no safe place to put my head, when you feel the world shake from the words that are said, and I'm calling on all angels, I'm calling all of you angels. And I won't give up if you don't give up. That's Ooh. 
Charlie Colleen, brother, thanks for those words. You're changing the world still after all these years. And I appreciate you so much as I always tune out and uh, close out and sign off. Remember, <clears throat> excuse me, when you finally decide to be a power player and focus in on your passion, your preparation and your pursuit of that passion, your power play begins in you. So until next time, remember what Charlie Colleen has taught all of us. We need to quantify our takeaway and I challenge all of you, as he has done and continues to do, go make a power play. Thanks for joining us, Charlie Colleen. We love you. We honor you. And again, thanks for changing the world one song, one lyric, one word at a time, brother. Thanks for having me, Dan. That was incredible. Yeah. Much we'll love, back. brother. Thank okay, you. man. I'll wait for that. Adios. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.